Hi and warm welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where I unfold with the help of invited guests from across the world how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. My name is Anna, I'm an environmentalist, sustainability consultant and the host of this show. Today we're talking with Ricardo Contreras Osorio, conservation biologist, environmentalist, member of an NGO called Red Internacional Biomimesis, and the president of an NGO called 400 Arboles, which looks after Pisquiac River and the cloud forest in the city of Jalapa in Mexico. The NGO works on environmental defense through legal and social empowerment. Ricardo is also my classmate from the Masters in Applied Ecology program. It's always a pleasure to talk to my colleagues. Today we will talk about biomimicry, design with nature in mind, or as Janine Benius puts it, nature has answers if we ask the right questions. You will learn about this name, about different schools of biomimicry, and how biomimicry can help introduce sustainability aspect in basically everything that surrounds us. Let's dive right into it. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We have an amazing interview coming up and I hope you will love listening to it as much as I loved working on it. Hi everyone and hi Ricardo. This episode is one of my favorite series of those that I record with my classmates. The first one we recorded with uh, Go Teryang on urban sustainability was a massive success. And now in this uncertain time of coronavirus, I, I have it as a rule to get in touch with my friends, with my family, relatives and so on, to check on them. My master classmates, of course, are in the list. So to give you a little bit of everyone, the listeners, of course, Ricardo knows, <laughs> a little bit of pre-story. I'm checking out on my friends and uh, sometimes we get to cool ideas and cool conclusions at the end of our calls. And last week we came to the idea that it would be nice to record a podcast episode together on the topic that I honestly uh, close to nothing about. I did my research, of course, for, for this episode, but I'm still very far from uh, being very knowledgeable. So I present everyone. Today my guest is Ricardo Contreras Osorio, right? And today Hi. we are talking about a very fascinating subject uh, called biomimicry. Ricardo, for everyone here with us, would you mind introducing yourself shortly i would ask you to start with where you were before masters before our masters program erasmus mundus then what you chose in terms of your masters project and where are you now hi everyone i'm ricardo contreras i'm from mexico and my background it's on biology i have a bachelor by the national autonomous university of mexico my first approach to research was on, on birds, ecology of birds. I also work on other topics and I have uh, some interest also in the social sciences. I have a uh, work on natural resource management and conservation biology. So for the, the masters that we did with Anna, 
I worked with landscape ecology, also related with birds. And I have the amazing fortune to travel to southern Brazil and work with the birds of Pampas, these grasslands from southern Brazil and Uruguay. And after our masters, I came back to Mexico and I rejoined the National University lecturing on the uh, protected uh, areas management and social environmental analysis or uh, configuration of problems. And that was for uh, a couple of years. And then uh, I um, came back to my hometown, which is Jalapa, the capital of the Veracruz state in the Atlantic coast, in Mexico. Cool. I completely forgot you did your master's uh, in Brazil. Completely was out of my mind. Well, <laughs> my dream country. Uh, last week, when we spoke, you shared your thoughts and ideas on biomimicry. That got me thinking, and I just recalled this thought today. There was, a, and there is, a series on Netflix on the artists and designers, and one of the episodes featuring Neri Oxman, the Israeli based in, in the US artist, who takes nature and replicates it in technology. You suggested biomimicry now, and it's only today that I connected the dots. In your definition, what is biomimicry? Well, I would like to tell you that over the last six years, I've been involved in a group of research and uh, communication of science related to biomimicry in Amazonia. It was an idea that came from a very old friend of my family, a colleague of my father when he was doing his PhD in Spain. And this uh, Colombian friend called him one day and said, hey, I have a project, it's in Amazonia, it's on biomimicry, and I thought on you, and I want you to come to Leticia, which is a city in the border of Colombia, uh, Brazil, and Peru. So my father said, okay, I will join, and he invited me. And at that moment, it was the, my first approach to biomimicry. After that, I have been... Uh, giving some time to that topic and getting involved with them in this uh, field. I will say that the, the, my own definition of biomimicry is the learn of the knowledge that we can get from nature and how we can use that knowledge to solve our problems, our human problems or societal problems. Uh, that's a very broad definition, but let me explain why it's so broad, this definition. I would like to make some history about the, the word itself. Mimicry, it's a Greek word that came out, or researchers in philosophy and arts think it might be related to the theatrical idea of how you can be inspired in order to develop an art such as theater or music or poetry. It was this idea on how could you as a person inspire yourself with your surrounding. So once an actor in the ancient Greek was completely 
into the role he was playing, then the mimicry or mimicry appeared. So it was this way to adopt a role, a character, and inspire in nature in order to become something else. Related to biology, that's the concept of the mimicry in those animals who are able to got mimic or mimetize on the wood or in the grass or to become one with the surroundings in order to disappear to the look of others, right? Mm -hmm. Like chameleon. Like a chameleon, exactly. So that's mimicry. So this idea of get fusionated with your surroundings, right? And in biology, this effect of mimicry or mimicking, I, I guess, uh, with your surrounding, it's uh, something that we can see on animals, on plants, on other beings, right? In biology, I think that's a very clear definition of what this mimicry. And then some years or maybe decades ago, in the field of innovation and high tech, someone got this idea that, oh, maybe we can solve our problems looking into the nature, which, let's be honest, is not new at all. We have always, as humans, as societies, as groups, we have looked into the nature in our surroundings, right? Yeah, yeah. But the high tech got this idea and got a lot of marketing around that and came out with this idea that, of course, high-tech can look into nature and improve, make better designs, make better processes, and offer ideas that after all our capitalistic and uh, let's bring our world to the end, appear like something very innovative, something very, very appealing to embrace, like new, solutions that are based on nature but only after we really got far very very far from nature right so that's more or less the scenario of biomimicry and that's why the bio this part of the word came after and uh, forgetting about the greeks and the real origin of the word biomimicry like a redundancy so that this bio should not be there but going back to your example what got you into biomimicry and what got you interested and inspired by that the project in the amazon what was it about this is a very nice idea because having clear this western approach to biomimicry we thought or the people uh, that was working there in the Amazonia basin thought that, hey, the local groups in Amazonia and probably anywhere else in the world have learned or have developed together with nature. I really believe that all uh, indigenous groups and all groups in the history of humanity have always related to nature. There is no way to separate both. Yeah, but they and still live by those rules of the nature. Exactly. So maybe in the Amazonia and the Amazonian people, our clearest uh, example 
what is to live with nature in and under very specific characteristics, right? We came out with the idea that maybe these Amazonian groups were societies under biomimicry. That was like our link between a very theoretical like, approach to the idea of biomimicry and the local reality. Mm-hmm. And of course, this brings us to a very complex scenario where uh, indigenous people are under a lot of pressure. Pressure regarding the loss of their lands, resisting to a degradation of their culture by change with the Western societies and Western ways of living and Western interest on development of the cities. And you have been there and you know that the Amazonia Basin is like the very, very far uh, west. It's a territory where we are having this conquest even today, a, a conquest that is very hard, where you have no access, you don't have fresh water, there is no electricity. I mean, it's the very, very end of the world. It became a scenario where all this discussion about people living with nature and Western people rediscovering nature is fantastic. Yeah. In more detail, the project, the scientists, you came there to study what exactly, how they, did, how they construct their architecture or... So, uh, this group was, again, a network of colleagues. The approach of this, like a society, but it's actually more like a network of uh, people interested in this topic of biomimicry, was like, let's bring together many examples and experience from the Amazonia Basin to Leticia, to this city, and let's exchange our experience. At the beginning, it was more like a meeting of people uh, working on several topics and getting together into the territory. For me, it was the second time I was in Amazonia. And last year, we have another meeting, this time in Bolivia, in the city of Cobija, which is the border between Peru, Brazil, and Bolivia. So we were exactly at the same, let's say, parallel, but southern Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the other side of the the very big river right the project now is more like uh, maintaining these links this working group so there is no one specific project in the territory but a lot of individual projects working on several topics but all of them linked to this idea of how can we get inspiration from nature to solve problems, local problems. And of course, not the Western problems like high-speed trains or ceilings of uh, our new airports, but more like how to get fresh water from polluted water or how to get um, new materials for the constructions, the construction of houses or buildings in a very humid, very warm, very unstable uh, soil things more related to the problems there, right? And of course, those problems can be exported to all any other context, like a tropical weather in, um, let's say, the developing country, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how do you think the, 
lessons learned from nature, be it the Amazon or maybe mountainous region somewhere else, how do they translate into the modern world sustainability challenges? In my mind, like when I hear biomimicry, first thing I'm thinking about is architecture, is how nature does, you know, plays with light and shadows and breathes through its own materials, how to make the building, let's say, preserving the cold or freshness during the summer, yet keeping the warmth in winter, and so on and so forth. So I'm going directly into the energy efficiency, building materials. Which other areas, for example, you can name that humans in the way we live now in the cities, consumption and so on and so forth. Which other ways can we translate the nature lessons into our own life? There is something that I would like to highlight now because there is a clue word on this uh, topic of biomimicry. As a evolutionary biologist, I was thought that there is no a design on nature. There is no one designing good things in nature. It's the result of a process. So evolution offers us the best results that life has uh, built over a long time of period that is the life itself. So those things that for us are perfect are the result of the evolutionary process, which is a selection of things that work versus other things that might not work, but of course we will not see them because then those were not selected. And then our result is something that looks like perfect, but is not static, is always under development, right? That idea to, to say that in the field of biomimicry, one of the main topics or concept that is cell is the design, the power of design. And that's just some millimeters away from the idea of old mighty designer, which is the worst enemy of evolution. Once we said that, there are many ways to inspire in nature. I mean, if you go outside and you look with some detail anything in nature, you will be able to say, oh my God, this is perfect. This works in a fantastic way. And you could see that from the flower that got pollinated by the very, very specific bee of the orchid plant. Or you could say that from the hexagonal cell of the bee, or you could say that from the peak of a bird that is fishing, or you could say any example, you could assume that is perfect for its uh, duty. And this is another very, very old question in biology and evolutionary bi biology, that is the shape and the function. What was at the first? The difference between user experience and aesthetics. <laughs> exactly. Why the whales have those wings? It was first a, a leg or a hand in the very past, and after many years it became a wing. But there is no um, causality. There is no something doing things in order to work as they work. And this idea is very, very important because it's the clue of our understanding of evolution. 
But if we neglect that, then we are, I would say, we are not saying all the truth because there is no reason why the whales are whales or why we are what we are or why the ants are a social community working all together only for one reason that the, the queen produces more ants. So in terms of the philosophy of science or the philosophy of the world we are living, it's a very, very appealing topic. We can have many approaches on architecture or for example, there is a lot of on the design of vehicles like cars, aerodynamics field regarding trains, airplanes, um, the wings of windmills. Everywhere that you look, you could say that someone thought there was a link between something in nature, in one animal or in one structure or in the shape of the skin or the bones. For example, this idea of our blood vessels and aerial photograph of a river. No, this idea of scales and uh, the ways that nature works is always there, right? Right. You just uh, gave me uh, another memory. I just recalled uh, when you spoke about um, means of transportation. Speaking of the Amazon, I was wondering, the boats they use, they are like arrow-shaped, very narrow and long, and they are not covered. And given that we were there in December and it was already raining nonstop, it was hard to find a moment to get out of the cabin, uh, hut, to go on exploration. Every time we were in the boat, rain would come. And by rain, I mean something that I have never experienced in my life that is actually very scary. And I was constantly thinking, why don't they cover their own boats? They are wet from the rain all the time. And the humidity in the air is super high also. So the, the, the clothing literally never dries. And now, now I think I understand because if you cover or if you produce any sort of tent on top of the boat, you completely change the, the way it moves with the, you know, what is it called? Resistance to, to the air and so on. But one thing to learn, if we sit together and kind of brainstorm now, architecture. Yeah technology so transport what else fashion maybe fashion of course because there is many 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 things that um, for example you got the skin of a shark it's not a flat surface let's say so it's a small piece with a shape and that shape produces an extraordinary good aerodynamic so if you study that piece in the skin of the shark you can then apply that surface and the its shape and its length and its width to another surface. Analyze the geometry, analyze the angles, analyze the shape, analyze the characteristics of the fluid that goes over the surface. And it's a question of the physics of the fluids, right? You cannot separate our knowledge, our scientific knowledge, from the example. You need both things to have a dialogue and say, okay, so Maybe I, the scientist of me, me, the scientist, is just maybe a theoretical approach and maybe after some years you can make an experiment approach and you got your conclusions. And of course, your conclusions will say, this is my example and this is not the true 
for all, right? Right. Which is what happens. It's, it's a try. That brings me to my next question. When in our pre-conversation, you shared that you went with these examples of Amazonian nature, how it works, how the community work, with the workshop to La Paz, the capital of Bolivia, and you shared those examples there. Can you tell me how difficult was it to adapt it to that area? We, we spoke about that episode with Terian. What is the sustainable city? What is a smart city? What is a green city? And you cannot just take Singapore and replicate it completely in Denmark. The climate is different. The mentality is different. All these uh, factors come in together and tell you, like, as what I just asked, where is the guarantee it will work? So can you yeah. tell me about those examples? Amazon, the um, tropical rainforest example that you bring to the capital of Bolivia, that is how many four thousand meters four hundred meters above the sea level four thousand meters the city of el alto which is like the flat highland and la paz is was built uh, in the border of this flat line in a canyon and the canyon is one thousand meters below so you have one thousand meters difference between <laughs> the city of la paz and its Twin city, El Alto. Right, but it's in the mountain. How do yeah. you, you know, translate the examples of the rainforest, one completely um, unique ecosystem by itself, to the mountainous region? It was very, very appealing, your conversation with Teriang, because when I was listening to the podcast, I was actually thinking about a lecture I needed to prepare for a workshop that we have with the Faculty of Urbanisms at uh, La Paz under this uh, network of biomimicry in the Amazonia. It was fantastic uh, to listen to you talking about this sustainable cities idea and the sustainability of uh, our contemporary way of living in huge cities where we can adapt everything. And of course, Singapore is probably the best example of how can we adapt to anything we can adapt to the lacking of land we can adapt to the lacking of fresh water and we have to adapt our city to a population that is extraordinarily high related to the density of inhabitants per square kilometer and it's a tropical region it's a paradise. So once you start researching about uh, this idea of smart cities, sustainable cities, cities that, that did very, very well into adapt their processes and their necessities to their surroundings and got this uh, label of a sustainable city, you can find cities like, let's say, Adelaide in Australia, or Munich in Germany, or maybe San Francisco in the US. And then you start looking to the, all the steps that this city needed to have in order to got into what we now can define as a sustainable city. And the process is very particular. And of course you cannot say, okay, because the consultant of the United Nations said that Adelaide is the best example of a sustainable city. I will 
go to Adelaide, I would look around and then I got a plane, go to El Alto or La Paz and I said, Mr. Mayor, here's the solution for your city according to what is a sustainable city. And there he starts implementing. <laughs> exactly. You need many, many millions in order to become an Australian citizen and follow all the rules. Yeah. <laughs> oh, as this is not possible, we have to rethink how can we make sustainable cities in their own context. And of course, the contexts are very particular. And we, th we think in this group of work that maybe Latin American countries or Amazonian countries or tropical countries might have some points that are similar beyond any cultural uh, context. We need to bring together those examples that are not the Western, uh, let's say, wealthy or developed experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea for that workshop on sustainable architecture or biomimicry and urbanism, um, I was asked to develop some ideas on environmental services. Because one of the things that we think is very important is like that we have to consider that one of the knowledge that we have got from nature is that nature or ecosystems or communities, natural communities, uh, sorted like in a net. Everything is connected with everything in some way. And from there, we can bring different examples of these connections. And one that was described long time ago and even analyzed in a very, very quantitative way was, for example, the use of energy. So we can in some way say that our planet, our global system uh, is fueled by the light of the sun, the energy of the sun and primary producers. So let's say the plants, the algae, all the photosynthetic uh, organisms are able to catch that energy, transform the energy into chemical energy and with that chemical energy do their own processes, which is actually living. And the plants will feed the animals. Those animals will be able to transform the sugar and all the nutrients that plants have into the energy that they need to live. And then one animal will eat another animal. And then you have a chain of the transfer of that primary energy of the sun, which is a very small quantity regarding the whole amount of energy that we receive until people got our energy from food. You could see other examples of these processes among the ecosystems that could be the cycling of resources. And you could uh, look for the cycle of minerals or the cycle of water that at the end is a closed cycle. And maybe at someone forgot that we live in a cycle world and we came to this idea of lineality so the first approaches to cities or city metabolisms was that you got the resources you bring it to the city you transform in the city and the city exports waste which is not a cycle we all knew that this was not the complete scenario right but for the ways of production it was always very linear we always got our 
primary resources or commodities, we make the transformations, we go to a product, you make all the branding and the marketing and you sell it and the consumer disposes yeah. wherever they want. Yeah. And it's not a cycle. Now we have this big approach of cycling everything. So you have to make the cycling of your valuable waste. You have to cycle the environment of enterprises, for example. This is very, very interesting. This idea of talking of the economic ecosystem or the economic environment where some business fit the necessities of other business. And then you have uh, something similar to what we think is nature. So that's why biomimicry became a very strong word because then you can apply everything with this wonderful idea that you got inspired in nature and then you go to the CEO of a big company and you say, look, I'm a consultant on biomimicry, so I can offer you a very big workshop under these methods and I will enlighten and greenwash the whole company towards a more sustainable model of business, right? Does it exist actually already, the biomimicry consultancy? Yes, and it not only exists in a very capitalistic Western way, it exists as a unique brand that uh, will conquer the whole world. And um, this is another knowledge that we have to assume. Mm -hmm. There is no one way to do things. That's also a natural knowledge. So at least I identify myself as like very critical with this approach of the branding and like exclusivity of an idea, right? Exclusivity of an idea. Uh, who can become the biomimicry consultant? Is it the same as biologist or biologist slash sociologist? That's a very good example. Let's say that you, Anna, became a consultant on ballet. You practice ballet, you have the knowledge, and you know that even among ballet, there are many schools, many experiences, and that as an art, once you get into a scenario and you get your music, the ballet is there with you. You are creating the steps, you are sharing your emotions and of course your body is the result of your own work and you cannot transfer your capacities and your feelings and everything to someone else of course you will not say that you will certify someone else with ballet because you know ballet is ridiculous i think this is not possible with the knowledge of uh, discipline so you cannot make consultancy paid consultancy on biology, saying that the biology knowledge is yours. It's the same with nature. Maybe you can offer your services as a professional of any field. You can devote your life to academic career. We have many ways to develop fields like scientific fields or artistic fields or social enterprises fields. Right. But, but no one would say that you are discovering the oil world of the production of wherever you think it's your own. This is a bit of a right? slippery slope. For example, you were an architect, you were practicing this, I am very inclined to say art. You cannot say you own geometry, you know? 
Exactly. Right. But you still practice your thing and you charge for it. So I think it's a little bit about how you actually use the skill. So it's not about owning nature or lessons from the nature, but like implementing them, getting to study them, to understand them, to implement them and to take responsibility for doing so. Exactly. And of course, there is the field of permaculture which was developed in Australia by the couple of researchers and practitioners there. The very first book on permaculture was from there. And that book proposed a series of methods and steps in order to achieve a goal. And as in any field, you are free to propose. And you are free to propose under evidence, under your own experience, under the very broad uh, knowledge that you can find in the libraries, in the experience of people, in the expertise of, I mean, you can uh, make your own contribution. And of course, you can go to the field of rights to say, this is my methodology. I got registered the methodology. And of course, you can come with me and I can certify you on my methodology in order you to achieve this goal. Mm -hmm. But this is completely different to say that my method is the method that my method is the reality and you can only say that you are doing ballet because you are certified in my academy but this is uh, the way of world works and i think this is just to be aware that once you type biomimicry in the browser the first thing that will appear is the company or the institute that will offer you a certification but this is not the world, right? So do you mean the certification kind of certification already exists? Yes, yes. You can become a professional of the biomimicry by a company and you have to pay every two years to maintain your title, which is also okay. ridiculous because, for example, you go to the university and you got a degree on biology. No one will ask you to pay every two years in order to hold your title. Yes, your degree. Monetization of um, an interesting concept. And I think part of the problem here is because it's so, not rare, but like we know so little actually about it. I'm in the topic of sustainability. I interview professionals in, in various fields uh, on their angle on sustainability every week. And I've never heard of biomimicry. Like, I heard something, but it never came to my mind to connect the two, to connect it to their, you know, architecture, urban studies, and so on. So if I hear about this, like, only in, in, in the past two weeks, maybe, and do my research, like, what about others? Going back to the, slightly back to that working group that took you to the Amazon, are there any requirements to enter? Let's say we have a... Um, someone interested in the topic, what shall the person do? One of the first things that we recognize in this group is that it's a Spanish speaker group. Of course, we have people from the US and other countries, but one of the characteristics of this group is that we are most Latin American members. The second characteristic will say that we are aware of this difference between the, the Western idea of biomimicry and our Latin American reality 
which at some moment is not completely related, right? Or it's far to be under the, the topics that uh, they are working and the reality or the needs or the problems that we are facing. That's a second um, difference. Beyond that, we are open to any other that is interested in the field. Let's say that we are in the very beginning of this net, like working on how to involve the institutions that the professor had to get funds and to solve the circumstances that we are far. But we have got these two meetings before. We are now working on the next one that probably will be next year and it will be here in Mexico if everything goes well. I think we have to build our own networks and to propose our own solutions. For example, with the experience of uh, one year ago with this workshop on architecture, it was very nice because at that moment I was talking about how to be sensitive, how an architect or a urban designer with all the its background of the profession, their own approach, their way, they look the, the surroundings, could propose a model of a house for a city like El Alto, which is a huge city that appear in a very short period of time with not that much water sources in these 4,000 meters over the sea level, very cold, very hot. There is no forest around because it's too high. So what you have is grasslands, and these amazing volcanoes in front of you, but you are under a lot of pressure of natural resources. So the idea was, what can you propose as a model of a sustainable house for this context, for this social context also, because it's a suburban area of La Paz, so there are low income, the family models is like, let's say big families, uh, worker families, it was built so fast that there was no space for public places, school, hospitals, markets, all the big uh, troubles that we have in big cities appear like that. So what can you uh, propose in order to tackle this scenario? I asked the students, like, think what are the natural elements around the city that you could be sensitive in order to propose a small garden, of course, uh, a pond, or uh, what are the insects around that area? What are the animals around that area? Or the vegetation, the trees? What can you incorporate to your design in order to, to bring nature into the house, into the model of a unity of architecture that could be more sensitive to the surroundings? Because then El Alto is like a sea of bricks, of orange bricks, but there's not a single tree. In part because it's not a place for trees, it's very high, but also because it's not in the map of the people because what they are thinking is, okay, I have a piece of land, I will build a house, and some years after I will build a second floor, a third floor, a fourth floor, and they got, and everyone should look to this phenomena of the architecture that is in El Alto, the owners of the big markets of products, let's say the wealthy 
ladies because in the Andinian society, women is ruling the market. They started a sort of uh, race for building the most particular and luxurious houses on these neighborhoods of the city. It's very, very appealing, like how you can start with an idea, this idea comes widely accepted, and then you have a phenomenon on the architecture of these places that are, in a sense, a house, a family house, but then these families start investing in, uh, let's say, ideas, something that I have this land, I start building my house, but then I got some extra money, so I make the bigger building, bigger building, bigger, 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 and with more particular qualities. And it's a way to prove my wealthy. Yeah. So it's a phenomenon on this city of El Alto, these huge buildings for parties, because then they are offered to, to celebrate parties. So it's like a sort of party halls or party buildings or Airbnbs or like crazy architectural buildings owned by a family in order to stay, look how well and how good I'm doing. Yeah, and so in this context, how did the students cope with your task of integration of nature into the city? What were the results, some shocking results? The idea to talking a group of architects, students of architecture or urbanism and say, hey, maybe it would be nice if you have some moment to think about what can be incorporated into the design of a house in order to be more sensitive with the nature and the surroundings. There are many that got into the idea, for example, of the hexagon as a natural shape in the building, for example, the bees. Some others thought about the snails in these uh, circular shapes and spaces, rounding spaces, circular spaces. And then, of course, you have this, the energy efficiency, how you will orientate your building towards sunlight or towards the wind, the quality of isolation of the materials. How are you going to build this, this design in order to be uh, warm and dry and fresh at the same time? So are you going to do that bringing bricks from China because they are more efficient or because they are natural? How can you do that with your own local resources? Because part of the sustainability is that now we have the world in one click. You can order these new panels that are incredibly isolated and thermic and elastic and wherever you want, but they will come from far. It's yeah. not a local resource. And then we, we come to this very small world where everything is moving and flying or shipped. So one of the rules might be look again to your local resources and think how you can use them. And you know, the, the current coronavirus crisis actually has already changed this canvas. I had a conversation recently with the circular economy consultant based in Spain. And she has already told me that, you know, now that supply chains with China were broken, the materials could not come in time, 
all of a sudden the factories that were around the small community we're not even talking the big city or a capital nothing like that reformed the government gave them the task like if you can reshape your production and produce what we need right now right here not only we will support you we will buy from you and you will be working even during the very strict quarantine so she was wondering and it's a very valid um, question why were we not doing that before because china was cheaper or but you know it's cheaper in terms of money but it's expensive in terms of carbon emissions yes. and so on and so yes. forth so i think this is where where we go in now because no one knows how long the quarantine the virus will be around I have no idea actually whether china is restarting or not but even if the production in other countries in european countries is stopped because people cannot be at work and um, this is gonna be the new reality another thing that i wanted to share is the concept is not new i figured it's at least from 2017 a so-called donut economy the needs of the community or the city is the inner circle the circle outside is the planetary boundaries like you know this resource that you want to use it has to come from somewhere so at the moment we need to have at least three planets to satisfy our needs today so we are already taking a lot from future generations and what you are saying about how to integrate nature in the city right now is exactly that donut economy that uh, by the way amsterdam is taking example from Yes, it, this is very, very interesting because then the reality, on my point of view, is that we need to assume that we cannot continue with these externalities of our economy. And one thing um, before the, the coronavirus crisis for me was, can you imagine one day that all the planes in the world will on land a day without planes? What would that imply for our carbon reality? And before I was thinking, probably there will be no day that planes will stay in land. But now, with this situation, we are seeing that nothing happens if one day the planes stay at, at land. Of course, someone is losing money. And I always think, like, it's not the same that you are losing money, that you are not earning that money. At the end, it's a business as usual issue. We, we cannot uh, continue like that. We really need to accept that we need to lose or to give up the things that we are doing in order to, to do things in other frame, in other limits. How long can we continue consuming three planets, four planets, eight planets? At the beginning, it was proposed as a way of measuring the consumption of countries. But of course, one country is not equal. The economy is not the same for one part of the society of one country than for the other. This way of analyzing altogether in the national way, it's also not letting us to see what's going on. Some industries, some manufacturing, some business have a, a major role on this uh, economy of carbon. And it's the same 
for the economy of water or the same for the economy of woods and loggings and forest resources or mineral resources. For example, in Mexico, we have this huge uh, tradition of mining. We give to the Spanish conquerors tons and tons and tons of silver and gold. Or if you go to Peru, it's the, the same history. And now we have our mining infrastructure, our minings on Canadian hands. We don't have a national mining company. Yeah, I heard about the story that uh, Machu Picchu is actually owned by a Canadian government or company. So all the money from the tourism is going not in the pocket of the country that geographically owns it, but the management, management company. And you know, for example, the Canadian companies have very strict rules, environmental limits in Canada. But the same company does not apply those rules in Mexico. I think we need to, to realize that we cannot continue like that. And that applies for all business. We need to, to really uh, consider that the limits of our planet are there. And we need to assume that we are really, really hurting the cycles of this global system. And with this project, this article of the planetary boundaries in the resilience center in Estegón. It was very clear and it, that was 10 years ago. Biodiversity as a limit or biological diversity as a limit. And when you say that, you are talking about animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, all the other things that are here around us that we are destroying, not in a, an active way, but let's say in a functional way. The forests are becoming empty of animals. Animals are not able to, to maintain their own populations. So that's like very clear to say. But for example, when you talked about the over enrichment of the ocean. Over enrichment with plastic? Over enrichment with nutrients, yes. not with plastic. That's another huge problem. But once you see that at the end of huge rivers like uh, Mississippi River, in the surroundings of the sea, you have so much nutrients that were added because of the agriculture that nothing is surviving there. If you go and exploit all the ecosystem there and it's empty, there is nothing around. That sounds like a sea of ghosts. And it's the same with the tropical forest around or the temperate forest, I think we have enough evidence that degradation or the functions in our planet are at risk. It's not the worst scenario, of course, but we have enough information to say, hey, watch out. This is happening. And this is happening because of this, 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 and these models of an economy that is not thinking on the people. It's thinking on how to accumulate money. And that was another lesson that I was proposing to this class on the environmental services. If you learn uh, about ecosystem and nature, nature does not accumulate. It's a flux. If you want to learn something about nature, you have to learn that you cannot accumulate things. It's not efficient, it's not possible. 
trees are not making a hole in order to keep the water they need for the entire year, right? Only humans are keeping fat. Only humans are, are thinking that our, our goal is to accumulate, to accumulate gold, to accumulate anything. But this idea of nature working, a continuous process, is let's not to accumulate. Let's use what we got, adapt to what we got, and adapt to that variation in the flux and the availability of things to be more adaptable and to, to realize that flexibility and resilience, this idea that you can be in one step or in one point, but you have the freedom to move under some margins, under some limits. That's where we have to be. But if we attach to this idea that things are like this and you earn that money per month like this and you sell this amount of things like this, then we are in the um, unflexible scenario, right? Yeah, this balance. One pre-last question. Do you think biomimicry will become, you know, will be heard as a concept and will become maybe new way of doing things in the future, in the nearest future? I think that's happening already. If you use this lens of biomimicry, you can find many, many examples and if you adopt this speech, let's say, this way to approach to the things you do, you are able to find the examples and experiences around. Very clear that the goal is a more sustainable world, of course. And it also has, or it might have a, a very strong component of the ethics of nature or the ethics of sustainability. So it, it's very well linked. I think it, it will become a, a mainstream. And what I would like to think is that this mainstream can be shared. Of course, if you invest a lot in developing a better process or a better product or a, be a better design, you can keep it for yourself and you can get some profit in the lucrative way to, to recover your investment, right? We are not questioning our economic model, but uh, of course, we don't have to forget that our economic model is the source, the main source of our problem. So it's a contradiction. Right. And one last question, I promise. For someone who is just starting uh, and is very curious about the concept, what would you suggest to read? Where to start? Where to go? There are many, many sources of uh, examples of uh, specific applications in many fields, particularly in the fields of materials, new materials. In architecture, there are a lot of examples of very famous and well-recognized architects that said, okay, I got inspired for this roof or for this building or for this way of cooling a building or designing a facade or, in many aspects of the architecture is nature there. For example, the Fibonacci proportions or the Aurean proportions. If you get this lens of biomimicry, then you can make those links with nature. So I will recommend to go into the net and look as many examples as they can find. Of course, 
On Wikipedia, you have more or less the idea of the concept. On the tech talks, you have a broad sort of videos, like more than 20 different videos from all the fields where you can listen to people talking about the biomimicry in their own fields. And of course, there are some books that are like very high, highly referenced as the, the origin of the term or the origin of the idea. And of course, I would say that you can learn about them and explore very, very, very deeply that approach of the Institute of Biomimicry. They have a free access toolbox where you can learn more or less about their methodologies and their approaches. It's always good to know all the roles or all the actors in an scenario, right? Right, in this field. I will share the resources you shared with me in the show notes. Sure. And, um, meanwhile, I want to thank you a lot for this conversation, for taking time uh, of your busy schedule, I know. Uh, to explain all of these things and share the examples from, from Latin America, from Mexico, from Bolivia, from the Amazon. It was amazing talking to you today, Ricardo. Thanks again. All the best and have a good uh, rest of the day. Yes, thank you very much, Anna. Let's build this world in a more, let's say, conscious or locally based solutions. Yeah, locally based ways. Very cool. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions whatsoever, do let me know uh, via LinkedIn. Ricardo is not on LinkedIn, but be sure I'll pass your questions and comments to him right away. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing on your social media, leaving a review and rating on a platform you're listening on. You can rate us on Podchaser page and leave a review there. I reply each and every one personally. By taking your time to leave a review, you help more people interested in practical aspects of sustainability to discover it. Creating a podcast involves a lot of talking to myself and with the guests and hoping that what I'm doing is working, is reaching someone somewhere. Receiving reviews, seeing people really engage with and talk about what I'm creating makes what can be a thankless and Sisyphean task worthwhile. Reviews help recognize that my efforts and those of my co-creators, editors and guests are actually recognized and appreciated. I'd also like to invite you to check some other related episodes out, such as Sustainable Tourism with Jeff Smith from uh, Six Senses Hotels, uh, or my episode called The Amazon Rainforest Journey, my attempt to be a little bit like David Attenborough. Uh, also, one of my beloved ones, where the challenge is there is an opportunity, interview with NASA's former climate science communicator, Laura Tenenbaum. And the episode of last week as well, if you haven't heard it already, Sea Turtles Conservation and Ecotourism with Jimena Gutierrez-Linse, also my classmate. These are some of the nature-focused episodes I produced over the past six months. On a design and architecture and sustainability note, you'd probably be interested in uh, what is green building and its benefits, one of the recent ones also, with Julia Craighill from Insight Consulting, and how to build a sustainable city, lessons from Singapore, with Estelle Forger. 
Apart of, from that, of course, you are more than welcome to listen to every other episode that resonates with you. I'd be happy if you connect with me on LinkedIn, challenge me with questions, or if you share with me some examples of biomimicry integration in your city. We have listeners from 82 countries, and I'm sure in different parts of the world there are some curious biomimicry-focused pieces that are worth spreading the word. You're also invited to suggest guests or topics you'd like me to cover in the future. Everything is welcome. Thank you again for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Meanwhile, take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye. Oh, and, and one more thing. It really sounded now like Lieutenant Colombo with this. And one more thing. Join us next week for the episode about islands and how they cope with climate change. I'm going to be talking with James Elsmore. Uh, not to miss any important updates, updates or next episodes, uh, please subscribe. Voilà, that's it for today. Bye-bye.